Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. Today we have a new friend of mine, Brant Kercharski. We're so excited to have Brant on. We recently were introduced by a mutual friend. And as I heard about his background and what he's accomplished, I was like, you need to come on the show. And he's so wonderful to try to say, Brant, thanks for coming on. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. And, you know, um, I hear I'm the first accountant you've had on your podcast. Is that true? That's absolutely they right. Have- first account that I know of. Right. I mean, some people might have had the county background, but that's really fun. So, um, Brant, tell, okay, so you've had this amazing background and um, probably every listener at some point has engaged one of the companies that you helped build uh, that went ultimately public that everybody knows, which is Grubhub. That's a brand that everybody knows. I'd love for you to share a little bit about your journey there. And then we're going to talk a little bit about um, Holiday Heroes, which is your pet charity. And you and I jammed on that for a minute, just how great it is to get involved in a cause that, you know, we care about and and the joy it brings in our lives. And then, um, and then lastly, learn a little bit about what you're doing at Ethos, the new SaaS company and, you know, just everything that you've been working on today. So why don't we start off by having you share a little bit about yourself, your background, um, and a little about Grubhub. I think listeners will, our listeners, we have a lot of um, entrepreneurs and a lot of um, investors and high net worth people that have had a lot of success that listen to the podcast. Um, and I think they love to hear the journey. So any any details about that would be so wonderful. Yeah. So thank you so much. Oh, totally cool. Um, excited to share. Um, I started my career as an accountant and I did many, many years at a big accounting firm. And you know, one one day I started to get a little bored. I got kind of tired of working 100 hour weeks, January, February, March. And I started kind of dipping my toes into joining a startup. Um, I was lucky that my wife was one of the first salespeople at Pandora. So she kind of got the startup bug. And I got to kind of see what she was doing a little bit. And then she introduced me to the founders of Grubhub. We're about you know, a few million dollars, a few million of revenue overall, less than 50 people. And I got to join the company as the first kind of finance accounting hire as chief guy officer controller. And you know, we were basically in Chicago and no, maybe one other city a little bit, and then just raise a whole bunch of money from Benchmark and some of these other great VCs and really put us on a path to go public and scale the company. Amazing. And and so your role there, like you were helping, tell us a little bit about your role and like what it was like to be in a company growing at that kind of lightning speed. Well, when I joined Grubhub, we were, you know, very, very small. We we're, you know, a million or so of revenue and we raised some money from Bill Burley at Benchmark took in some money and we raised some money later. And we just started to expand from one city to two to 10 to 100, made a few M&A acquisitions that really started to really hit the pedal on the gas. And we really had a plan to go public. And my job was to help take them public on the accounting side, get ready for you know, the S1 filing, 
um, really support the CFO. We brought in a wonderful CFO about a year before we went public or two, a guy named Adam DeWitt. And you know, he was a banker. It's it's really interesting, I think, when you look at a lot of these CFOs now, right? The days of a CFO being kind of an accountant are gone. Right? Most CFOs now are bankers, that's bankers, they're operators, they're really speaking to the investors and really kind of you know, being a partner to the CEO. And then they leave all the other stuff that I like doing, accounting, SEC reporting, controls tax to me. And it's my job to get it right and kind of help scale there. And it's it's a wonderful partnership that we kind of built. And it all led to a really successful IPO of Grow Pub in 2014. Amazing. So I love, so were you kind of in the CFO position and then he came and then kind of re- replaced you as you prepared for that? IPO moment? No, is that right? Is no, that my no. I, I, I never want to be a CFO. Um, I like being the number one, number two, right? Yeah. We had we actually had a director of VP of finance, one by the name of Amy Cooper that led finance before. She was kind of dealing with the budgets, forecasts, and all that. And, you know, I, I was really accounting hired trying to get our stuff in place so we can go public. Um a, a lot of going public is really getting your accounting right, getting your you know, technical positions, controls, and all that. So that, that so much work. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's stuff I like. You know, I'm I'm just super nerdy. So you know, I it, it always came you know natural to me. So that that was really my job and really helping you know the company get ready to go public. But you know, I I was never in that role. You know, I I like supporting the CFO and you know we form a great team. And you know, I always tell people, Lindsay, that the best part of GrubHub is all the other opportunities that it opened up for me. Right. You know, right around the same time I joined Grubhub, I was introduced to a wonderful family. They were two high school girls. They're 17 and 13. And, you know, they were going around buying gift cards for really sick kids in the hospital. And I got to meet them and, you know, really understand what they're doing and really kind of form a foundation called the Holiday Heroes, right? And they were doing this on their own. We kind of formed the charity, formed a board, and really took this, took this thing from a high school project to really a million-dollar foundation all across the country that helps kids in long-term medical care, provides birthday parties, holiday parties, you know, joy and comfort and gift cards, and just really helps bring kids at their worst moment. It helps cheer them up while they're in there. That's amazing. And so that's Holiday Heroes. And you, so it was just some young girls that were selling door-to-door that got you engaged. Is that right? No, like you just- No, so um, I, I actually met them outside Wrigley Field. Um, I was going to a seven o'clock baseball game. I had a bunch of beers and- you know, I saw a mom sitting in the corner with her the two high school girls, Heather and Haley, and they were just asking people for money. And I kind of stopped and talked to them. And, you know, the mom was kind of mouthing off a little bit because I didn't have any money on me. And, you know, I started talking to them like, you know, you guys are doing something real nice. Are you a real cherry? And the mom said, no. So kind of, you know, piqued my interest a little bit. And I said, hey, well, why don't we grab lunch? Let's talk about what we can do together. And we just met and formed a board, right? Became a 501c3. And what was, what was super cool was that, you know, the thing really took off because of two things. One, I think there was interest in people getting to know Holly Heroes because of the Grubhub story. This is like the heyday, right? Raising money, just the number one tech company around the Midwest. Second thing was that uh, the girl's godfather was a Hall of Fame pitcher for the Cubs named Fergie Jenkins. So he's got a statue outside Wrigley Field and he was very involved. So it was pretty easy for us to really meet people and say, Hey, come meet Fergie. It's a Cubs player. And everyone bringing you know, up Chicago knows him. And it was, it was great to kind of expand and then just really build a board of ultra networkers. Like if you picture Garrett, our entire board is full of people like Garrett who introduced you and me, right? Uh, together. Yeah. 
a total networker, this Garrett. He's delightful, um, just loves people and loves to share them. Really? And that's exactly right. Like in nonprofits, everything is relational. I mean, you have um, you have to have a really good why and you have to have a good business around it operationally. But a lot of what makes a nonprofit good is the people have emotional intelligence and relational equity because that's how these things grow. And so y- had you ever done anything in the nonprofit space before? Or did you jump in like no. kind of blind, not knowing what? We had no clue what we're doing. Okay. Our first fundraiser, th- th- this was 2010. I think we spent $25,000 and raised 27. So we made $2,000, right? And, you know, we didn't know what we're doing, but, you know, we learned from it and, you know, we probably had 150 people. Fast forward two or three years later, we probably have 500 and then we have a thousand people attending our events each year. And, you know, one of the things that kind of worked for us is, you know, a lot of times these charity foundations have a sit down dinner, right? You get the chicken and you get all that type of stuff. We couldn't afford to do that because we had no money, right? We had no employees at the time. It was all volunteer. Um, not, now we have five full-time employees, but, you know, all we could really afford to do was have like a happy hour, right? And drinks and we turned this thing into something that was really like a young adult party at the time. Like this is 14 years ago. I was young. Um, but we turned this thing into a really, really popular party that got all the young kids involved. And, you know, fast forward three or four years, we're in Chicago scene. Chicago social is one of the hottest parties for charities in Chicago. And, you know, we're getting a thousand people to show up and, you know, you get the young people in, you get their parents in. We had a lot of sponsors and this thing was making you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in one night of just gross proceeds, right? And you know, it just really scaled. And what's super cool is we took this idea of, hey, let's throw a big party, let's get people there, and you know, really just get people in a generous mood. We recently took it to Nashville this past um, September, right? So that was about a month or two ago. We made over two hundred thousand dollars in our first night. Really great event. We had a great local board. Um, really kind of took the same model. So it worked in Chicago. Now we're taking it to Nashville and kind of proving it out right now, working in Vanderbilt and really taking care of kids each month and, you know, some surprise enjoying hospitals to make them feel good. That's amazing. I love that you're expanding. And um, right now the organization, so you say you have about five employees. Yes. How many, how many kids have you guys helped? Like what are your guys' out- outcomes so far? Like, are you- do, you, do you know some of those so what's interesting is when, when I first tell people about Holiday Heroes, they always think about Christmas, right? There's actually the least amount of kids in the hospital around Christmas, right? Because if your kid is even somewhat healthy, you know, or you know, can be home, if they can be you know, a little bit, they're going to be at home. So really it's kids who are, you know, in the hospital February, March for St. Patrick's Day or Easter or 4th of July, where there's the highest inventory, right? So the program is really developed not around Christmas, we, we do some Christmas time, but when when kind of um the beds are at the fullest and we can really bring our full program in, we probably have tens of thousands of kids. You know, in terms of bringing a program in, we bring in superheroes, we buy food for the parents. And, you know, what's great is we started off in the main hospital in Chicago, which is Lurie's, and then we got to expand to some of the, you know, underserved communities, right, in Chicago, like La Rabita, which is in the South Side, UIC, Rush, and some other areas that don't get a lot of visitors for, for the kids, right? So the, the foundation really started to focus on kids who are underserved from visits and kind of other surprises who are in their long term. And, and these are kids who are, you know, cancer, kidney transplants, um, just a lot of things you don't wish on any kids. And, you know, when the thing started back then, I didn't have kids. And now I really appreciate how healthy my kids are. And, you know, 
I still see the kids, you know, this how how ill and and the parents just tried to deal with their kids and have kids at home and it just really some surprise and joy and comfort makes all the difference. Yeah, that's that's it's such a gift to people when they're in struggle that just feel loved. Um, how do you have any stories that are you know compelling about it that maybe listeners want to hear about what you're doing? Um, where you know a specific story that is kind of seared into your heart about the work that you guys are doing and how, how much it matter. Yeah. I'm going to try not to choke up on this one. All right. So, um, there's when the first kids we ever helped was a kid who had a heart transplant, right? And every time we came in back, back then we didn't have full-time employees yet because we didn't have enough money, but we'd come, we'd come to Larry's hospital. His name was Nick and he had a heart transplant. He was always in there. Every time we went, you know, we'd see him in there and you know, his name was Iron Nick, right? He got a $100 gift card. His parents were able to buy him presents and surprise him. Just really cheered him up. And he loved when we came, right? He would actually time his treatments around and his follow-ups when he was in there around kind of when we were going to be there, right? And he loved it so much, he started going with us once he was better to visit the other kids, right? In the other hospitals, right? He ended up creating a children's book for Holly Heroes. And he kind of became our poster child of, you know, he'd get up there and speak at the banquets about how, you know, his parents had to work, right? They couldn't always be there when him and he was sick and he had relapses or whatever it was. And we got to bring him in and kind of really tell the story about how we, we cheer him up and made him feel good and all that. And, you know, he he was speaking at all of our events in 2016, 17, 18, and then, you know, he, he passed away. So oh. yeah, his body rejected Harvey. He had a... Um, he he had he had oh. a bunch of complications, but he fought hard. But you know he he was that one was tough. You know. Oh sweet Nick, I love that he had the heart to serve after he was a little bit better, and he went with you guys. That's such a gift. Um, so so Brent, when you guys are, it, you're tell me a little bit about your your work now. I mean you're you're still working with Holiday Heroes. You're on the board, yep. and you're still um, helping expand and grow and get support there, but. Tell me a little bit about your new work after after Grubhub goes public. How quickly did you transition and change into a new a new job? Well, Grubhub, you know, when when I joined the company, there's less than fifty people. When I left in um, twenty twenty one, there's about four thousand. I spent you know seventy years as a Wall Street officer. We sold the company for seven billion dollars to Just Eat. So you know, I was part of the exec team there, and I just loved it. I mean, it was you know. I always tell people the story of, you know, I got into Grubhub at the perfect time, Lindsay. If I would have waited one year, they probably would not have hired him, right? Because they would have had so much money and so much growth. They would have wanted someone who was, you know, 45 or 50 years old. I was 30 at the time, right? So, you know, I, I had the skill set and I was able to really kind of grow with the company, but, you know, and demonstrate that as the right person. But, you know, a year later, it wouldn't have worked out. They would have wanted someone with more experience, right? And the other thing I always tell people is, you know, I have so much respect for the CFO who came in there to kind of lead the IPO. He could have easily have come in there and said, look, you know, he, I, I think he was 40 at the time, right? You know, he could have come in there and said, hey, Brad's only 31. I need someone who's been there and done that, right? I need someone who's, you know, 30 years experience. But he's like, look, you got the talent. I'm going to believe in you and I know you can do it, right? So he kind of believed in me. We did the IPO together and it really set my career up and, you know, a lot of great things happened from it, right? Um, no, I left the I left the company that was sold um, in, in 2021. I joined an amazing startup called Ethos Life. 
And it's uh, it was founded by two Stanford guys, Peter and Linky, and we kind of deal in the business of life insurance and kind of you know really taking a six week process of getting life insurance down to ten minutes using AI. So cool! Tell us a little bit more about that because uh, having gotten life insurance and gone through, I think two different times to switch to a different you know plan or provider. Um, it is so extensive and it takes so much time. It's like really involved and I understand why it makes sense. You know, they're trying to see, how, you know, what risk they're taking on you with yeah. your health, but tell, tell us a little about your tech and the AI. So what, what Peter Linky found was that, Hey, like life insurance hasn't changed in 150 years. Right. And what they found is that, look, you know, it, it's a five week process. They got to come over, they got to take your blood, they take your urine, then they come back five weeks later and. By then, you may not be interested. And it just wasn't very efficient, right? So these these two guys are really, really, really sharp and smart. They built kind of a software stack and a tech stack that uses your medical records, uses your prescription records, your credit, and they can underwrite you using AI, okay? And they know that the, the mortality is just as accurate, if not better, than doing it the old-fashioned way, blood and urine, right? So you kind of come in there, you ask a few questions. They pull it automatically and they say, hey, Lindsay, you know, on a scale of one to 100, your health factor is a 91. This is your premium. Would you like to do it? Yes. And you're done. Right. So it's a, it's, it's a big TAM. You know, your, your medical records are anonymized online. Right. They, they know what doctors you visited. You know, it's all online. Right. You give consent. We know what prescriptions you've taken and they can kind of profile you a little bit. Right. And kind of ascertain your health. And, you know, Seven of the top 50, um, you know, Fortune 50 companies in the country are life insurance companies. And there's a big TAM and they're all doing it the old way. And, and this this new way using kind of how consumers want to be reacted with this is powerful. Okay. So you made it easier for these individuals to get insurance and it's quicker process. So is your, are your clients then the insurance providers? Is that who you guys are selling your your software as a service too yeah what, what happens is you know we're we're like a geico right it's not it's not all that different than you know uber or grubhub or amazon where we're going out finding the consumer as a marketplace right so i find you i underwrite you i sell you a policy from one of our amazing carrier partners and they take on the risk as soon as it's signed up we don't we don't carry the risk if the person passes and um and how do you guys currently market like what's your strategy to find these individuals i mean it's a lot of data science, a lot of like, hey, who are the best people who are in a position of need of life insurance, right? Maybe maybe you're looking for babies, right? Or sorry, maybe not looking for babies. Maybe you're just having a baby and you're searching websites, right? Maybe you just got married, right? Maybe you just bought a house. So there, there's a lot of marketing strategy of looking for people who fall into that bucket, right? And, and targeting those consumers, right? Now, we other, the other thing that's super cool is, you know, the direct consumer is probably, you know, a, a large amount of the business, but then, then then there's a very, very nice part of the business where we work with outside kind of independent contractors, where, you know, we'll have tens of thousands of people who sell our product. They have their own website and they'll sign up their clients, get paid a commission every time they refer someone to Ethos on their own. So these could be real estate brokers, these could be mortgage brokers, these could be current, um, you know, life insurance consultants, right? Who just don't want to go through the old six-week process that want to, want to get their clients 
you know, underwritten in 10 minutes. So th- there's a large network that is kind of a, another chunk of our business. Amazing. So, um, so, you know, you've been in this journey a, a long time in business and being an accountant. Do you have any like good stories uh, that you can impart for people that are running their business, especially if they're preparing for like an IPO where you're like, hey, this is what I learned. Like if I could go back and, you know, know what I know now, this is like advice I'd give to somebody whose hope is to go public. I mean, going public, you know, m- my advice is, you know, really kind of geared around the accounting side of things, right? You really want to flush out all the risks of all the bad stuff that go wrong, right? You want to make sure that you're not going to get delayed from the SEC. You want to make sure you can act as a public company. You want to make sure that you have the right controls in place and you can really tell a good story, right, on that side. And then, you know, as a public company, a lot of it is how well can you use data and, you know, really data science to really help you make decisions, right? And, you know, Grubhub had, you know, 50, 50 plus people who are data scientists who would say, okay, Lindsay, you know, if I offer you a $5 coupon to order or offer you $3 off your next three orders, what's the best behavior of getting you to stick around, right? Or, you know, if we spend $10 million this month and we spend $15 million next month, what's the behavior of that consumer cohort and how does that kind of relate back? And it's really data science and kind of use that to make decisions in the business, right? And kind of scale your business that way. So, the, 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 those are things to me that really are are, are important. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it's just about having really clean accounting. Did you see any? Because um, you started there at, at, with fifty employees, what kind of um, investments have you had Grubhub taken by that point? Were they like in their Series B, or where? Were, how far? Along, how far along were they? Um, Grubhub raised a million dollar angel round. Then they raised a three million dollar Series A. So they had some money from some um, local venture capitalists in there. And then really the, the the big round came from Benchmark, which was our Series C. And, and then that was, you know, a, a well-known venture capitalist, Bill Gurley, who kind of came in there. We all got to meet him. And, you know, his reputation is up there, you know, probably one of the top five best-selling VCs in the world. And, you know, just having him be involved. And the great thing is Bill was so involved in our business, right? He He put the money in and he was like, look. I'm going to help you succeed. I have the context. I'm going to help you scale. And, you know, he, he probably spoke to our founders every day. Wow. That's incredible. And um, in, are all the founders still with the company or did, did a lot of the, that, that amazing CFO that you had such a joy working under, are they still there or did they move on to other things? Do you know? Oh, the company was acquired, right? Um, you know, changes happen when the company's acquired. Um, one of the founders left Grubhub after 2015. He actually went on. He actually went um, on a bicycle kind of marathon around the country for a year. So, so he kind of took his bike and was cool. around the country, visit all these states, recorded it, made a book of it. Um, that was his passion, and he actually started another company called Fixer. His name's Mike Evans, which is kind of like an on-demand handyman, where you know you need you have something broken in your house, you call, they find an independent contractor to come over. So he started that business, which is doing very well. And then the other founder, Matt Maloney, left the company probably around the same time I did to kind of just settle down. And, you know, he, he spent, you know, 15, 20 years doing it and, you know, moved on, right? Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Rand, tell us a little bit about, you know, what's made you want to get into accounting and to and into business the way you have. Like, did you have um, 
somebody in your life that inspired you, a mentor, any anybody who kind of pushed you into this career? What led you to do what you decided to do? I have the worst story for getting into accounting, if you want to hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. All right, so I started off as an engineer, right? I started off as a computer engineer. And back in 1997, you know, nobody had their own computer, right? So the only way I could work on programs was to go into the computer lab and then try to hope there's a computer available to work on my programs, right? And I went to Northern Illinois and they only let you sign into a computer for two hours and they kicked you out. So I, I'm coming with my programs at like three o'clock. They'd sign me out at five and then it'd be like a five hour wait, right? So for, for about a year, I would have to hunt to a computer lab, hope I can get in, if not wait for hours. And, you know, I was going to bed at one or two in the morning, not because there was that much work, right? Just because, you know, I, I had to just find a computer that had availability and, you know, they literally work two hours at a time, right? Kind of silly. So, you know, did that for a while. And at that time, I'm like, this is just ridiculous, right? I'm not doing this. It burnt me out. I'm like, I'm done with computers. And, you know, kind of just lucked into accounting with the business. I took an accounting class. I loved it, right? I love the theory of how, you know, interpreting a problem. Here's the rules. Here's how I need to think about it, right? Like, accounting is not debit to credit. It's always like, it, it, a lot of it's philosophical. And yeah. interpretation and what you think and using research and kind of forming opinions on facts and kind of building arguments and and, and that's things I like to do. So just took accounting classes and loved it, right? And, um, and just really, you know, look forward to accounting and, you know, really realize too that a lot of the accounting profession is very kind of introverted, right? So I learned early on that, hey, you know, I, I like to speak. I'm kind of an extrovert a little bit. And that just played really well in public accounting too and just had a lot of you know, things in common with me to really kind of get into that profession and change it a little bit. That's so cool. Yeah, that's true. When I think stereotypically of an accountant, I, I don't think of an extrovert necessarily, but um, I have a brother-in-law who's an accountant. He's been a, a CFO and, you know, um, done a lot of uh, great work in different industries, but he he's very outgoing and gregarious and loves people and relationships. And so, yeah, I, that paradigm was shifted for me a while ago, but I um, that's cool. I love that you said that it's kind of philosophical. I think a lot of times, you know, for people that aren't, don't love math, they don't realize, and I'm one of those that didn't love math. But the first time that I actually kind of fell in love with math was in college in an applied mathematics class that was teaching me about, you know, compound interest and, you know, things that would actually matter in the world, like for my mortgage and for my credit cards and like understanding how the financial mechanisms and the math behind it would actually impact my life um, in an applied way. And it was, it changed everything. So I can see as an accountant, because um, those premises, if you have the wrong, if you have false assumptions in your business model with your accounting, you, I mean, you really can cut off a cliff in a business, right? Um, did you have any examples of like, um, I don't know, accounting, discovering something in business that nobody else could figure out and be like, this is actually the problem or something that wasn't inherently obvious until you applied some of that, that I mean, math, math that, that rigor for accounting. Yeah. I mean, if, if you remember when, when Grubhub was going public, they were really the first public company in the gig space, right? There was no Uber, there's no DoorDash, right? Um, so there's some really unique and specific accounting principles. We had to read the roles and interpret how they apply to us, right? So, you know, what, one thing that's super interesting is that, you know, the platforms offer you $5 off your order, right? And, you know, 
we, we looked at the rules and the rules are a little bit gray, but we took that position and said, hey, that should be a reduction of revenue, right? I, I, I want to bore your, your listeners, but you know, we said, hey, that should, be, that, that should be contra revenue, right? So some of the platforms, I'm not going to name names, but they said, hey, you offer that $5, that's going to be treated as a marketing expense below the line from revenue. So you could report $5 of revenue and then below that $5 of marketing, even though it just gave the person $5 for an order, right? So weird things came up in the gig economy. We, we always want to play it safe and conservative and really kind of, you know, interpret what we think is best. But there's, there's power into helping the CFO think through transactions, think through structuring items and contracts to really, you know, understand what, what's the balance sheet and the income statement going to look like if we enter this large deal with Yelm or Taco Bell, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's super, that's fascinating. You know, you don't think of these things, but when you're kind of in a dis a disruptor business, when you're doing something nobody's done, there are kind of new rules. It's kind of the wild west, isn't it? You're having to figure out, you know, how do we frame and contextualize things in a way that are reasonable? Um, so that's, that's fascinating. So Brant, tell me a little bit about growing up and your world uh, in terms of, if you had a mentor or someone who's taught you something that's really meaningful that when you are in maybe like the tireless nights, accounting, stressful things, getting ready for IPO, whatever it may be. Maybe it was like, I, I laugh when you talked about waiting in line for a computer. That's so weird to think that we didn't have all Why? personal computers. Like I remember having to do my homework and waiting and scheduling to go to the library to use a computer yep. in college. I was in college, you know? Um, and I remember like when emails were invented when I was in high school and being like, what? Yeah. Email? Oh, and, yeah. you know, you know, yeah. I still use that as my junk mail today. Soccerita is, you know, because it was, I love soccer. So <laughs> Soccerita at Yahoo, you know? So like, anyway, it's so funny because um, we take for granted, I think sometimes today, just how much the utility of technology has shaped our lives, our everyday lives and our ability to accomplish things. And when I think back on, oh my gosh, remember when you had to print out the MapQuest? Well, it has all the details right here on this piece of paper that I printed from home that I got before I left in my car. Um, just the world that we're in. But um, yeah, you know, just on your journey as you are in this, you know, neck breaking speed growth and all the things, do you have any mentors or thoughts or advice, you know, for people um, as far as business is concerned, get through some of the hard aspects or some of the inspiring parts of it? Well, my, my mentor in public accounting was an audit partner named Bob Birdie, right? I was lucky where, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I had three internships at my firm before I started and, you know, Got to know him. He liked my style. So I think he just put me on three-fourths of all of his jobs. So, you know, I basically worked for him, which is nice. And, you know, he really, really taught me like, hey, you know, majority of the world are not accountants. Okay. So if you have a technical item, you can't just go up to people in site literature and say that Gap 606 says this. You need to present it in layman terms, make sure everyone can understand it and say, hey, you know, here's a real world example of what we're trying to do and, and make sure everyone can understand it, right? So he really like nailed that with me. And, and that's something where I really brought the Grubhub where I'm talking to, you know, the technology department, marketing, legal, whatever it is. And, you know, I'd say, hey, here's what it's going to look like on the balance sheet and income statement. We're going to have to take a $6 million hit or this, this is how we're going to record it and make it relatable, right? Because if you can't make it relatable, no one can understand it, right? It's kind of like a doctor coming in there and, no, if they give you a prognosis and they can't help you understand it in basic terms, it's not going to do anybody any good, right? Totally. Yeah, that's really good advice. Like, how do we packetize our expertise in a way that's receivable to people that it's not their nomenclature, it's not their vernacular? I think that's really, 
really good in, insight. What about on a personal level? Who are some of your heroes in life? You, you know, grandpa, mom, you know, your wife, you got somebody that you really look up to? Heroes. You're stumping me for once with a question. Oh, you know, um, I, I, I put my faith in God. Um, I think God has really um, put a lot of opportunities that are unique into my life and really helped me do a lot of good with those. And, you know, ju just when I thought like I was burnt out public counting, you know, Grubhub popped open and then, you know, I had this wonderful opportunity to learn and grow and just really, you know, meet my wife and just really a lot of things around kind of faith that were his plan that were amazing. Right. So that, that, that that's my one um, right there. And then, um, you know, just to, just to backtrack a little bit on kind of our, our previous point a little bit, um, it's very important, I think, for accountants to be relatable. And then really, a lot of times you have to tell people, hey, you can't do this anymore, right? You're not a startup. You got to act like a big company because we're going public and people don't want to hear that, right? So- yeah, I bet you, you, that you were annoying to people with oh, your- <laughs> I upset people- Regulate. I, I upset people all the time, right? And I, I had to use humor and make it fun to get them to do some things to comply with going public, right? Like I, 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 That's really cool. I have a good story about our engineers if you really want to hear a good one. Yeah, was, I'd love to hear okay. it. So there was a really, really nerdy like gap standard around the capitalization of IT wages. And what that means is every time an engineer works, you put a portion of it on a balance sheet and you depreciate it. Real nerdy. But it's a lot of work to get to do it. The last thing the world engineers want to do, all tech companies have to do it, is to kind of look after their time, what projects are they working on, and then what, what portion's building something new, right? So they hate it, right? They hate it at Grubhub, they hate it at Ethos, and they just don't want to do it, but they have to do it, right? So I remember the first time at Grubhub, I was right out of public accounting. I went to our engineers, well, I had like five or six, and I said, hey guys, we got to start tracking our time and put down projects. Nobody wanted to do it, right? So I told them, look, if you give me the sheets quarterly, I'm going to buy you guys all pizza and pop, from Papa John's, we'll have a pizza party, okay? And then they looked at it, they're like, well, I don't really want to do this, but if I get pizza and pop each quarter, I'm going to do it, right? So got them, wow. and they did a good job. Then our engineering went from, you know, five, six people to 20 to, you know, hundreds, and the tradition stuck, right? So this thing, you know, wow. is if they do a good job and it's out of time and I say it's quality and they've met all the requirements of Gap, they got a pizza party and that still holds true today. That's hilarious because I used pizza parties when I was in middle school to incentivize kids to come and help volunteer for the recycling uh, club that I created called the Trash Bashers. I like it. So what works for middle schoolers in terms of pizza incentives also work for engineers at Grubhub. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, amazing. Well, I, you know, um, you know, I, I think what's fun is knowing that, you know, as you've been through your journey in business, you've kind of um, found the most meaningful, we talked about this when we first met, but you, the most meaningful you, thing you do is your service work, right? And and you you find the most joy from that. Can you share a little bit of like, uh, by the way, thanks for sharing about your faith. Um, I also have a strong faith in, um, do you have a certain faith background? Was there a certain um, like upbringing you had around that that also kind of instilled in you the desire to serve and why you find so much purpose and meaning in, in in giving back? Uh, you know, for me, I'm a Christian man. Um, I was raised by wonderful Christian parents who really instilled that, you know, Lord Jesus, our Savior. And, you know, those principles have been, you know, kind of passed down to me from my parents about being kind and, you know, loving and understanding and, you know, really bringing that 
faith in terms of kind of um it's a word you know outward outward vision kind of passion to other people and treating people the way you want to be treated right so i i think for me you know if 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 i'm interacting with someone even if i'm giving feedback i try to put myself in their shoes and really try to remember you know how i would want to be interacted with right hmm yeah that's really cool so that's amazing and that's um it, it's neat to know that you started that before you even had children, you know, that, um, like, as you said, you've probably been so grateful that you have healthy kids having had a up close, um, front row seat to a lot of kids being in a lot of pain, um, with different elements being in the hospital. So, uh, what are some big ad advice you're going to leave your kids, um, you know, in terms of, you know, if they're going off to college or as they're looking for their career, what, what, what things would you give them as like concrete things to be like, Hey, you know, look for this, know this, any, any like platitudes or, or powerful things that you want to share with instill in them. Like I, I tell my eight year old this all the time, right? Even at eight years old, you'll see kids teasing other kids, not, not her necessarily. Right. But I, I try to teach her treat other people how you want to be treated. Right. Someone may be different than you. That's okay. And, you know, treat them how you want to be treated. Number one. Right. And then two, I always try to teach her when you do something, if it's basketball, if it's homework, give it all you have, right? You know, you may not love soccer. You may not love basketball. I'm sure she doesn't like sports. You know, she, we're still working on that, but I tell her, give it everything you have, right? Cause that, that's, that, that's the way you can really help your team and be kind, right? That's really good. So you're, you have how many kids, Fran? I have two. I have an eight, eight year old girl and a three year old boy. Oh, fun. Do you find yourself parenting differently, a boy and a girl? I mean, honestly, do you find any like differences, subtle differences in how you approach it? Well, I, did, you know, I, I was um, shocked how different the girl and boys are, right? Like the boy, you know, I, I, you, you, how, how old are your kids, Lindsay? I've got three boys, Yo, 15, boys. 13, and then. Okay. Yeah. Like, um, you know, like the girl always played so nice with her toys and so gentle and soft. You know, <laughs> you know, boys like they like just break things and put walls. I, I don't, I don't understand. Like it's night and day difference. <laughs> yes, it's so true. I have a lot of girl envy when I watch these little girls sitting, coloring and doing something quiet and playing with dolls. I'm like, what would that be? Like? Yeah, it's funny though because you're in. You've got an eight year old as your oldest, so I've got teenagers mm -hmm. now, and I will say that having observed parents with girls that are going through teenage years, I'm like, oh, now it's easy for me because I got these boys who are like, I'm not, you know, they shrug off, that. you know, they shrug off like their emotions. Maybe they have a little attitude. Maybe they're a little indignant, but then they're like, sorry, mom, you know, cool. They just let things roll off their back. Yep. Like it's classic, but yeah, I think I had paid my dues early, I think. Um, so, so Brad, is there anything you want to share? Like just kind of wrapping up here with like one of our last questions. What is there anything you want to share with our listeners as, you know, advice or a story or anything about, you know, you've, you've been a part of like a historic, you know, successful company that, like you said, was um, kind of making history, kind of one of the first. Um, any, any insights or thoughts about being a part of something that big and, and anything you gained as like a person that might be applied to everybody else's journeys at all? Kind of the esoteric question for you. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great one. Um, I think really just the importance of networking. Right. Um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a big networker. I don't really have much to sell and I'm not in services at all, but I enjoy helping people make great connections and you never know when that's going to come around back to you. Right. And, yeah. you know, um, I saw firsthand with Holly Heroes where we had a board of just a lot of lawyers, accountants, people in sales that just had big networks. Right. And, you know, they all would network. I would help them network. And we really formed this group of 10 people who helped each other meet, you know, CEOs and CFOs and grow something, work on something together for the common good, which was amazing, right? And just the important networking, yeah. maintaining a network because you never know when you're going to need it, right? Yeah. So it's all about relationships. Wilson I love it. Everything. I'm, I'm grateful for Garrett for ma- building our connection, our relationship, oh, cool. and for you recently connecting me to some of the team at Grubhub. So thank you for that. Um, I'm just so grateful you came on the show today, Brand, and and thanks for sharing. And good luck with Ethos, and hopefully you have another meteoric success public exit. year for Ethos. We'll see. Let's do it. All right, let's go. Well, thank you again, Brant, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it's you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys. Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.